You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get to the story of a missing Minnesota mother. 26-year-old Madeline Kingsbury has been missing since March 31st, and law enforcement seems to be zeroing in on her two children's father, Adam Fravel. So let's move back to the last day Madeline was seen. Now, her and Adam had jointly taken the two children to daycare at 8 o'clock in the morning on the last day of March. According to Adam, they both returned to the residence they shared, and then Adam left for work at 10 a.m. He claims Madeline stayed at the home. Madeline, or someone using her phone, did send a laughing emoji to her sister in reference to a photo that was sent the night before. Now, that photo was from a vacation that the two had taken last summer. And that emoji was sent at 8.15 that morning. Well, later that day, co-workers at the Mayo Clinic became concerned when Madeline did not show up for work. Oh, those co-workers, they are always the heroes reporting the missing. All right, and then the daycare, they, well, they also were alarmed when she didn't pick up her children at the designated time. Adam, for his part, said when he returned later that day, Madeline was not at home. Now, police declared her disappearance as suspicious, and they are currently considering her an endangered missing person. Well, following her disappearance, police did search the home shared by Madeline and Adam, and there they found her cell phone, her wallet that included her ID, and the jacket that she was wearing earlier that day when she took the kids to daycare. Now, in the next few days, thousands showed up in Winona, Minnesota, to search for Madeline, but Adam was missing during those searches. And I'm sure some of you are screaming about what a red flag action that is. Well, Adam released a statement to the public to explain his role in the disappearance. He said in the statement that over the course of the last 12 days while Madeline has been missing, he and his family have been subject to a myriad of accusations regarding the disappearance of the mother of his children. And that during those 12 days, he's cooperated with law enforcement at every turn, including sitting down for multiple interviews. He also said he had nothing to do with Madeline's disappearance and that he wants the mother of his five-year-old and two-year-old to be found and brought home safely. He also said it was law enforcement who advised him to not participate in the searches. Now, Madeline's sister, Megan, has questions about that statement. She revealed to the public that despite the fact that Madeline and Adam were sharing a residence, they weren't a couple anymore. In fact, she said Madeline was looking for her own place. Now, police have, in their words, drafted and served numerous search warrants. They have also not confirmed if Adam is being cooperative. One concern police have shared with the public is that Madeline's 2014 dark blue Chrysler town and country van may have traveled from Winona to eastern Fillmore County on the day of her disappearance. Okay, so that's about a two-hour trip there and back. And police are asking for people in that exact area to review their security camera footage for that day. Police are also not saying who was driving the van. 
They did, however, release a map of certain areas they were asking residents to search on their own, like their own outbuildings or property. Okay, well, about a week after making this request, law enforcement narrowed the request. They specifically asked property owners in Winona and Fillmore counties to report old wells from before 1925, as well as old homesteads, windmills, and sinkholes. So the counties, they don't have records of these structures, and this could lead to new places to search for Madeline. The searches have also become so extensive that properties are marked as searched by placing a specific blue ribbon around the mailbox. All right, since Adam did not have custodial rights of the kids, the two children are placed in the custody of Winona County Health and Human Services for a 72-hour hold. Remember, Adam and Madeline aren't married, so there is no legal agreement that's been reached for Adam to be considered their guardian. When government officials arrived to take custody of the children, Adam was uncooperative to say the least. He ushered one of the children into the home and then he locked the door despite being told clearly that the children were under the care of Winona County. When Adam finally relinquished the two children, he wouldn't even allow bags to be packed with the kids' belongings. And eventually, the children left with the authorities with only the clothes that they were wearing. Adam has tried unsuccessfully to regain the children via the court system, but a judge has ruled the kids will remain in the custody of Madeline's parents. Now another custody hearing will be held in the first week of June. All right, Madeline's sister Megan has also said it has been, in her words, radio silence from Adam since her sister's disappearance. All right, on Saturday, Madeline's family confirmed that a special prosecutor has been assigned to work with law enforcement. So why would they do this? Well, signs are pointing to the idea that the special prosecutor would be helping with prosecution in what is bound to be a complicated case. And we're just going to have to wait and see who they plan on prosecuting. And family is continuing the searches for Madeline, and they back up the requests of law enforcement for people to search their properties. At a vigil held for Madeline in early May, her family said the following, Although we don't know Maddie's whereabouts, we are still grieving the time we are missing with her. Even on the brightest days, it still feels dark and gloomy without her here. We wake up from nightmares and realize they are not as terrifying as the nightmare we're currently living. All right, this is obviously an active case, and I'll update you, hopefully with good information for Madeline's family. All right, let's give you the quick update on the murder case out of northern Idaho. And I'm not really sure this needs much of a reminder, but I'm going to give you a little bit. So 28-year-old grad student Brian Koberger is accused of viciously slaughtering four University of Idaho students in Moscow in November of last year. His alleged victims are Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chopin, Maddie Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. Now, two other students were left alive in the off-campus housing. One of those students, Dylan Mortensen, helped police with the arrest of Koberger by giving a description of the intruder and the suspected killer. Well, Koberger was arraigned on Monday as a judge read aloud the murder and burglary charges against him. Koberger sat wordlessly. When the judge asked Koberger if he was prepared to enter a plea, the suspected murderer said nothing. Instead, his attorney said the following, Your Honor, we are standing silent. 
Now, this unconventional legal strategy is also known as standing mute, and it relies on an Idaho criminal rule, which requires a judge to then enter a not guilty plea on the defendant's behalf. So this effectively allows him to avoid verbally committing to being guilty or not guilty. So despite not saying anything, he is now recorded as a not guilty plea. And why would he and his attorney choose this strategy? All right, there's one possible reason where prosecutors and defense attorneys may be negotiating behind the scenes discussing a plea agreement. If he hasn't openly stated his plea, he can wait until a possible agreement is reached and then declare his plea. And some were speculating that his attorney might be jockeying for an insanity plea. Well, Idaho doesn't have an insanity defense. And others speculated he might be just a difficult client who is refusing to cooperate. So what happens next for Koberger? His trial is set to begin October 2nd of this year, and it should last about six weeks. Prosecutors have 60 days to identify whether they plan to seek the death penalty in the case. And Koberger should be back in court on June 9th to address motions about the wide-ranging gag order in this case. So a media coalition and the family of Kaylee Goncalves have been fighting the gag order since the judge issued that order. Now, this gag order restricts prosecutors, defense attorneys, and the attorneys for the victim's families from publicly discussing the details of the case that aren't already part of public record. Now, despite that gag order, some new potential evidence has been released to the public. So there was a recent NBC report, and it has shown that Kohlberger allegedly stalked a female classmate at Washington State University. This happened months before the killings in November, and Koberger is accused of befriending this girl in a ruse to help her by installing surveillance cameras in her home for protection. The classmate was concerned because some of her belongings in her home had been shuffled into different resting places, and nothing was stolen, so she didn't report it to the police. But she did tell Koberger about the potential break-in, and he offered to help install the security system. The Dateline report contends Koberger had internet access to that camera footage anytime he was within the woman's Wi-Fi range. Now, the same NBC report also detailed a bizarre incident that happened near the King Road residence where the four college students were murdered. So just a few houses away, a female college student reported that her luggage had been removed from her car and that items that were located in the front seat of the car were now zipped into the luggage that was sitting outside of the car. And this was all except for one item. A pair of underwear had been removed from her luggage and placed in a cup holder in the car. All right, the NBC report also revealed that one of Koberger's sisters was suspicious of his behavior once he returned to Pennsylvania. Remember, Koberger left the Washington campus in December just a few weeks after the killings. He returned to his parents' home in Pennsylvania. And during the holidays, his sister was concerned about Koberger driving a white Elantra. Law enforcement in Idaho had revealed they were looking for a car that matched Koberger's car. Their suspicions were heightened so much that they floated the idea he could be the suspect and they went outside to examine his car. Now, I'll keep you updated as soon as the prosecutors determine if they are filing for the death penalty or if a plea agreement is reached. And of course, I'll let you know if any more details of that horrific murder scene surface. 
All right, finally today, let's head on over to Georgia, where I have three different stories that are making me ask, what the heck is going on in Georgia jails and prisons? So let's start with the Shawshank Redemption-like story of Kayvon Thomas. He did exactly what Tim Robbins did in the 1994 film. He tunneled through the wall of the Fulton County Jail, except Kayvon wasn't trying to escape. He tunneled into the neighboring cell in order to stab a fellow inmate. Now, photos online show a hole in a shower wall big enough for a grown man to crawl through. And his attack was not quite as dramatic as a tunnel through a shower wall would suggest. He only left superficial wounds on his victim and additional criminal charges are pending. Okay, that was story number one, guy tunneling through the wall. Here's story number two. This second prison incident also occurred in the Fulton County Jail. And this story involves the completely unexplainable death of LaShawn Thompson, who died on September 13th of last year. He was being held for charges of battery. And LaShawn had been arrested and held in the county jail since June, but he was placed in the psychiatric unit to treat mental health issues. This all according to a statement by the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. Now, at the time of his death, the statement said that Due to HIPAA regulations, they were unable to share any information about what his health conditions were at that time and how he was accepting or refusing health care while incarcerated. But news reports started to confirm that LaShawn was found on September 13th slumped over the toilet in his cell, covered in bed bugs. An initial autopsy done by Fulton County said that there were no obvious signs of trauma found on LaShawn's body and that the cause of death was listed as undetermined. However, pictures released online show the horrific conditions LaShawn was housed in and how his body was covered in bites. But a second independent autopsy was completed and results were released last week. In the second autopsy, it was found that LaShawn suffered from dehydration, malnutrition, and severe body insect infestation. This along with untreated schizophrenia. Now, LaShawn had lost 32 pounds in the previous three months. During the press conference where the second autopsy results were released, LaShawn's brother Brad McRae said the following, It's enough that the bed bugs and lice sat there and ate my brother to death but it's the neglect that hurts me the most. Now, upon the death of LaShawn, the sheriff's office did respond and say that they would be taking immediate action in the jail, including spending $500,000 to address the infestation of bedbugs, lice, and other vermin. They also said they would be updating protocols for security rounds that included adding additional staff members to the mental health unit. They also agreed to transfer 600 inmates to other counties in an effort to help relieve the overcrowding. Okay, Sheriff Pat LeBay also indicated he would be launching a full investigation into the circumstances involving LaShawn's death. All right, that was story number two. We had story number one, guy tunneling through the wall. Story number two, guy dying from bed bug infestation. Here's story number three. And sadly, LaShawn isn't the only death that the Georgia criminal system is reviewing. So in the first week of April, a prisoner's body was found stuffed inside a mattress in his cell in Smith State Prison. 71-year-old Anthony Joseph Zeno had laid dead in his cell for five days before being discovered by guards. 
According to an investigation by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, officers at GDC facilities are required to make rounds and check on inmates at least four times during a 24-hour period. The count is a basic requirement of the job, but in this case, nobody bothered to look in on an aging inmate or, if they did, they apparently didn't notice a horrifying scene because when the coroner for Tattnall County arrived at the prison, Anthony's body was so decomposed that it was leaking fluid and that two body bags were required to remove the prisoner. Now, a report by the prison indicated that Anthony had wanted to die. He was serving a life sentence for killing his wife and teenage daughter. Apparently, Anthony had asked his cellmate to conceal his death as long as possible. Now, the Georgia Department of Corrections is referring to the death as a mercy killing, and Anthony's cellmate has been charged with his death. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, they received an email from GDC spokesperson Joan Heath. In the email, she acknowledged that breakdowns in policy and procedure appear to have occurred in Anthony's death. Okay, all I have to say is you think? It took five days to notice he had died. She also assured in the email that an investigation was ongoing. However, she noted that despite Anthony wanting to die, that didn't lessen the fact that his deterioration was ignored. She wrote that the situation requires accountability where appropriate. Now, the investigation by the Atlanta Constitution Journal revealed that 64 inmates have died in Georgia jails and prisons in the last 13 years. In fact, one other death occurred in the Henry County Jail in Georgia less than a month ago. I just didn't cover that one for you. That would have been case number four. So staffing in GDC facilities has seen a 40% drop from 2018 to 2022. Yu Hurwitz, who is a prison management consultant, said that prison systems across the nation are struggling to hire staff. But he also told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that anybody should be horrified by what happened with Anthony, whether that incident is happening in Georgia or any other state. Now, criminal charges have yet to be filed in either LaShawn's or Anthony's cases. Well, that's your Thursday edition of Rise in Crime. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.